So first, we would like to start off this presentation with just asking who in the audience is a veteran? All right, thank you for your service. We're also interested in knowing how many family members of veterans we have in the audience. Thank you for your service as well, because you're an important member. Um, also, we're curious, how many of you guys work in a primary care setting? Okay, awesome. And then um, specialized pain setting. Okay, very good. Hope, we're hoping that this talk today um, will give you guys some ideas about different uh, components of programs that you might implement in, in your own setting. Um, so Beth and I are going to present on two distinct models of care, um, and so yeah, we'll get started there. Also, I want to mention, so I am at the at VA Boston now, but the presentation, the talk that I'm going to do today, I'm actually going to be describing a program or a model that is, has been implemented at the Salem VA Medical Center in, in Roanoke, or Salem, Virginia. So before we get started, just like to note that um, neither Dr. Dinoff or I have anything to disclose, and the views that are presented today are those of ours and don't reflect um, the Veterans Health Administration. So for learning object objectives for my talk today, um, I would like to describe just a range of the holistic care pain-related approaches that can be implemented in a primary care setting. Also, um, we will recognize the benefits of including mental health professionals in the assessment and treatment of chronic pain in primary care. And mental health professionals can be uh, clinical psychologists or licensed clinical social workers. And then we'll also look at some barriers and facilitators to providing holistic pain management services in the primary care setting. So I'm sure you all are aware that back in the 1990s, the American Pain Society talked about pain as being um, the fifth vital sign. And the Veterans Health Administration really jumped on board with this idea and this was a, a really important time because it placed a spotlight on pain assessment and pain intervention. And the v, out of this, the VA developed a national pain management strategy that actually tasked each medical facility with measuring consistently and regularly pain, documenting that pain measurement, and educating veterans and family members on the importance of pain measurement. So I should say that this strategy really, at this point, wasn't focused on the intervention aspect. It was primarily focused on the measurement and the documentation of pain. This was really an important time because it allowed us to gather the type of data that we needed to understand how many veterans actually have chronic pain. Um, and out of this strategy came a task force who developed a toolkit uh, that 
VA's different medical centers implemented. The toolkit actually described measurement strategies and documentation templates and strategies. Out of that data, um, you'll see this first study that's cited up here. Kearns and his Kern and call his colleagues found that approximately 50% of veterans in a primary care setting are diagnosed with at least one chronic pain condition. In the VA, I'm not sure how many of you work in the VA setting, but we have this term called service connection. And service connection refers to compensation that someone can receive from a disability uh, that was caused or exacerbated by military service. We've seen really an increase in service-related disabilities that are related to chronic pain since the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So some of you might know that the VA is known for its acronyms. Um, so I'd like to just throw out a couple for you guys right now so that we're all kind of operating on the same knowledge of terms here. But the wars in, the war in Afghanistan that period of time is referred to OEF, which stands for Operation Enduring Freedom. And then the war in Iraq, there's two conflicts, uh, OEF and, I mean, sorry, OIF and OND. So OIF um, refers to Operation Enduring, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and then OND refers to Operation New Dawn. So these veterans, our OEF, OIF, OND veterans, um, are, we've seen an increase in pain-related, service-connected disabilities. The leading cause of these you know, acute and chronic disabilities is pain. And because of that, the VA has seen a 270% increase in opioid prescriptions, and this includes a 281% increase in methadone, as well as a 578% increase in hydrocodone prescriptions. And as you can imagine, because of that, we've also seen an increase in opioid-related overdoses. Just between 2001 and 2009, these opioid-related overdoses doubled. One thing that we do know is the way that a person experiences and interprets their pain is highly related to their emotional well-being. So chronic pain is related to, we've seen it in research, to mental health disorders such as substance abuse disorder, clinical depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, that's a big one. And some VA researchers found that up to 34% of veterans who, were, who have, were referred for pain treatment also had a comorbid diagnosis of PTSD. And up to 87% of veterans who were referred for treatment for PTSD also carry a diagnosis of chronic pain. And we also know that veterans who have comorbid chronic pain and PTSD tend to have worse outcomes, worse pain, more intense pain, as well as more emotional distress, 
uh, greater interference just in life, so poor quality of life and greater disability. Now, I want to talk to you today about one specific model of pain management in a primary care setting. And like I said before, this is one that we've implemented at the Salem VA Medical Center. In primary care, once you integrate mental health, um, we have what's called primary care mental health integration. So that really defines the role that mental health professionals play in primary care. When you have this PCMH, PCMHI model, we like acronyms, um, you basically have the mental health professionals directly in the clinic um, and they are completely integrated in the care, providing a holistic care to the veterans. And the services, the way that we deliver the services through our PCMHI at the Salem VA, first we have individual face-to-face -face appointments. We also do shared appointments. That is where the primary care provider or nurse might, or social worker, might ask the MHI provider to come in and talk to the veteran about such and such. And so we're actually having that appointment together with the primary care provider. We also offer services through telehealth and telephone. Um, one of the things that the VA is really, I think, known for and is leading is this movement to provide services via telehealth. So that is something that I feel like the Salem VA has done a great job at. So the primary care mental health integration providers, we not only provide telehealth to veterans individually, so in their home through telephone, but we also provide services to the smaller um, outpatient centers in more rural areas. And those of you who work in the VA are familiar with the term CBOX, um, which is the community-based outpatient centers. Generally, those community-based outpatient centers tend to have a smaller staff and can really benefit from the resources from a larger VA, their parent organization. So the services that we offer in primary care mental health integration um, are real-time consultation for team members. So we are there and have an open door policy. The primary care provider can step into my office and say, hey, I need to talk to you about this patient. Um, we also have you know, warm handoffs uh, whenever a veteran comes in for a primary care appointment, if there's a behavioral health or mental health issue that needs to be addressed, the primary care provider will bring the patient to my office or another MHI provider's office and say, hello, this is Mr. So-and-so, this is Mr. Barnes, and um, he's really interested in smoking cessation, for example. The interventions that we offer in primary care are time-limited, brief, individual and group therapy interventions, and we'll get into more specific interventions in just a little bit. And we also offer crisis management interventions. So within primary care, we've been tasked to provide kind of that frontline pain management for veterans. 
Um, and the VA has adopted this stepped care model. And this stepped care model has three steps. Um, it is progressive, um, meaning we start with the low intensity treatments first and then progressively get more intensive, more tailored as you move along the continuum. And this really is a best practice model. So you'll see up here really this first step, which is the patient aligned care teams or PACs. Um, this is where primary care has been tasked to provide that frontline treatment. So primary care does that routine screening for pain, presence, and intensity, which came out of that national strategy. Um, and then we also offer comprehensive pain assessments. Um, PCMHI providers actually are tasked to provide or to conduct comprehensive assessments with every veteran who has a condition that causes chronic pain. So you can imagine how big of an effort that has been. Um, we also, in primary care, are tasked to manage just common pain, chronic, uh, common chronic pain conditions. Um, and then also the opioid renewals, which I know Dr. Dinoff is going to talk more about in a bit. And then so that this second stage is secondary consultation. And this is relevant to the model that I'm going to present today because the PCMHI providers at the Salem VA um, provided some of these services because we had a lot of communication between the the pain clinics and the other specialty clinics. So in primary care, we were actually providing some of the behavioral pain management. So I just want to note some of the benefits of including mental health professionals in primary care and having this PCMHI model. First of all, having mental health professionals collaborate in the care can really optimize the function of a PAC team. Um, it is really great to have, you know, different disciplines get together and talk about some of the issues that veterans are struggling with and present maybe different ideas for how to, how to treat the veteran. And in that way, you can really develop a comprehensive treatment plan, right? And especially with the treatment of chronic pain, that is so important. Also, including mental health professionals in the treatment in primary care settings, um, it allows the opportunity to provide that holistic care for chronic pain. It also improves the access for pain management services because within our model, and I'll share with you a little bit more about this, but PCMHI actually had all of the knowledge about the different services, pain-related services that we had at the Salem VA. So having, you know, a one source that you can go to for all of that information can improve the access for veterans. And then also, mental health professionals are trained to use skills to promote behavior change. And we know that behavior change or actually health behaviors are so important in, in pain management. For example, smoking, alcohol use, lack of exercise, things like that. 
So before we get started talking about the specific interventions that we offer in PCMHI and at the Salem VA Medical Center, I wanted to first talk a little bit about the stages of change um, or this trans-theoretical model, which I'm sure some of you might have heard of. But we really modeled these, the, the interventions that we provide at the Salem VA based on the different um, stages of change. So just to start off, we'll kind of go over these different stages of change. First is the pre-contemplation. Um, if you've ever worked with a patient that you feel like is resistant to care or just extremely ambivalent about um, engaging in healthy behaviors, uh, doesn't really want to hear any information about how to change, you're probably seeing folks in the, this pre-contemplation stage. This contemplation, contemplation, the next stage of change, folks are maybe within the six months are planning to make some sort of change but are not yet there or ready to start planning yet. And in the preparation stage, the person is getting ready, right? And then in the action stage, that person is actually implementing some type of health behavior change. And maintenance is focused on, so they've been implementing this behavior change and they're really focusing now on relapse prevention. And I also want to mention motivational interviewing. How many of you have heard of motivational interviewing? Excellent. So motivational interviewing is actually, it is a skill set that you can use to really get at the person's desires or needs for change, their motivation for change. This is so important because it understanding where the veteran or where the patient is coming from, understanding their experience, you can really help the patient move through these stages of change and elicit what we call change talk. And change talk is really getting the person to talk about how effective they think that pain management strategies might be, how competent they think that they may be in their abilities to stick with these pain management interventions, and how motivated they are to make a change in their life. So the very, very first principle for motivational interviewing is to listen to your patient. I know a lot of times when you are going about your day-to-day -day at work and maybe you have 20 minutes to see a patient and you're feeling really rushed because you have to get all of these things in, this assessment, and tell the patient you know, what the next steps are for treatment, um, provide some education. It can be really difficult just to take some time to listen to your patient and see where they are. But really, this is the first opportunity to create or the first step in creating a collaborative relationship with the veteran or the patient. Listen to your patient. Also, understand your patient's motivation, um, where they're coming from. And this resist the writing reflex, what this refers to writing is we, we know what is healthy for our patients. We know what is the best thing for 
you know, positive behavior change, for pain management. And it's, we want so badly to just be able to take this knowledge from our brain and put it into the brain of our patients and for them to change their behavior immediately. And so it's, it can be hard at times not to just tell our patients what to do. Um, and this is what I'm talking about here, resist the writing reflex. Resist doing that because once you get into that mode where you're telling your patient what to do, the patient starts to resist what you're saying. And then this next step, empower your patient and support their autonomy. If you can really understand where they're coming from, understand their experiences, and support whatever decision they make, um, and just provide the information when they need it, then you can really start to see some change in where they are along these stages of change. That allows some wiggle room for them, and they don't feel backed into a corner. So the interventions that I'm going to talk about today, specifically that we've implemented in PCMHI at Salem, um, we have some some patient-focused interventions, which include assessment, education, psychological interventions, and then referrals. That's another um, component or role that PCMHI plays is referral to specialty mental health and behavioral health clinics. And we also have some provider-focused, I say interventions, but it's really services, provider-focused services that PCMHI provides, and we'll get into that. So first, I mentioned before that PCMHI has been tasked to see every veteran who has a condition that can cause chronic pain or who presents with chronic pain. And so primary care mental health integration providers meet with the veteran for 30 minutes for that initial appointment, that initial assessment. And in that assessment, we gather information about the veteran's pain history interventions that they've tried, even um, self-care interventions. How have those interventions worked? We also get gather information about their mental health history, their current psychological functioning. We gather information about their substance abuse history and their current use of substances. We also, at that appointment, assess their motivation for engaging in or trying out other pain management interventions. And then last but not least, we also, in that appointment, assess suicide risk. So this level one education um, for veterans who have a chronic pain condition, they can really choose two avenues um, to be ass assessed, that fully assessed, and then just get basic information on all the pain services that we have to offer. They can go into what we call a CAM education group. This is a one-time 60-minute group where they come in and learn about all the different pain services. We have a handout that we provide. I'll show you that in a second. Um, and if the veterans are interested, then we continue to do more assessment in that appointment or they can just have an individual behavioral health appointment with the PCMHI on the day that they come in for their primary care appointment. If they can't stay for an extra 30-minute appointment, then we just schedule another appointment for them to come in, or they can just come in as a walk-in. So those appointments, we provide a handout on 
some of, some of the pain interventions that we provide, all the complementary and alternative approaches to pain management, those services. Um, and at that point, we also make some recommendations about what to try first. So this is just basic level one assessment and education. This is really their first introduction to um, mental health, behavioral health providers. We also, for those veterans who are presenting with symptoms of depression or PTSD or insomnia, so if they're having trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, they're waking up too early, they're not feeling like they've gotten a good night's rest, we have two other groups, just one-time educational groups they can go into, a depression group, a healthy sleep habits group, where they get information about the relationship or the connection between chronic pain, um, behavioral health, mental health, and they learn just some basic self-management strategies and skills that they can use um, to, to try and minimize some of these symptoms. If they would, at that point, like additional services, then we triage for that. We have this other, this level two education that's specifically focused on pain. So once veterans do that initial behavioral health appointment or the CAM education group, then they can go to the pain school. Um, and the pain school is run by a licensed clinical social worker. We had six sessions. They're all 60-minute sessions. So she facilitates this group, but each week we have a, uh, a speaker come in, and an expert in the field who works in Salem, um, on these specific topics. So we also, now we're getting into some of the psychological interventions. We have a level one, what we call, and so I've um, named this a psychological intervention versus an educational intervention because in these interventions that I'm about to talk about, we actually look, have the veteran look at his or her thoughts and emotions and we work with those. So the first level is this coping with chronic pain group. And if you, some of you might be familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, but that's the, um, that is what we use for this 12-session group. Um, and in cognitive behavioral therapy, you basically look at the thoughts that a person has because the idea is that their thoughts are going to impact their behavior. So for example, let's say... Mr. Farm has chronic pain. Mr. Farm also has a couple of children. He's in his, I don't know, late 30s, and his son plays baseball. Mr. Farm decides that, you know, his pain is so great that he can't make it out to his son's baseball games because he's going to have to walk half a mile, and gosh, that's going to be just awful he's going to hurt so much that next day and he's going to be worthless. Just imagine all these, the words, the emotions that this brings up for Mr. Farm. Um, and that's going to limit his behavior. He's probably not going to go out to his son's baseball game. 
So we use that kind of framework in, in this coping with chronic pain group. We also, in PCMHI, provide individual pain coaching. Oftentimes, it's around four to eight sessions, but we can also go out to 12 sessions if needed. And we use both CBT, that cognitive behavioral therapy, or acceptance and commitment therapy, known as ACT. And ACT is um, a newer type of therapy <clears throat> that has kind of three components. So in ACT, we look at the person's thoughts. So Mr. Farms thought that um, uh, he can't go to his son's baseball game because he is going to be worthless the next day. And we, we get the patient or veteran to kind of defuse or get some distance from those thoughts and those feelings. And then the second component of ACT is really to have the person, it's a mindfulness component, have the person contact with the present moment, just be able to observe their thoughts and feelings and sensations, what's going on in their body and what's going on in their mind. And then the last component of ACT is values-based. You have them identify what their values are in life and help them identify ways to live consistently with their values. So, for example, Mr. Farm, maybe a value of his is he really wants to connect with his son. So in that situation, that example where he's not going to his son's baseball uh, game because of his pain, in that moment, he's not necessarily living out those values. So you use ACT in that way. So this kind of second level of psychological or complementary and alternative um, interventions, we have a... An, a an interdisciplinary pain clinic, it's the Center for Interdisciplinary Pain Management, known as CIPM, we like acronyms, um, and if the veteran needs additional, you know, hands-on assessment, additional interventions, then we refer them to this clinic, um, and this clinic consists of a medical provider, a psychologist, a nurse practitioner, a pharmacy doctor, we can also refer them to our behavioral medicine clinic where they can do biofeedback or hypnosis for pain management or refer them for battlefield acupuncture. So battlefield acupuncture or BFA, we do offer at Salem. And a lot of times what happens is once the veteran goes through that initial appointment with PCMHI, they say, oh, you have BFA? I'll try that and I'll try, try some of these others. So a lot of times we, have, we refer them for BFA while they're going that route through education and then on to the psychological interventions. We also have psychological interventions for more traditional mental health or behavioral health issues. So just within primary care, since this is the level one, where it's still in primary care, we offer a stress management group. It's a 10-week group that focuses on time management, stress, sleep, um, and even um, just some uh, self-skills for uh, pain management. We also offer brief individual MPCMHI as well. So the brief individual therapy, we can offer face-to-face -face sessions. We also offer through telemental health. Um, and a lot of times these sessions or these interventions will focus on problem solving or relaxation training or cognitive restructuring. 
If they need additional treatment beyond that, then we can refer them to our general mental health clinic or our behavioral health clinic, or I didn't put this up here, but also our substance abuse clinic as well. And I mentioned, so these, that's kind of the conclusion of the range of pain management services that we offer in PCMHI or through PCMHI in primary care. I also mentioned, though, that we have these provider-focused um, services that PCMHI offers. In a moment, you'll see how, just how complex the services can be, it, how many services we offer at Salem, and it can be difficult to figure out where to refer a veteran. If, you've, if you work in a VA, you know that a lot of times clinics w work in silos, and it's hard to know what all services are available. So we offer consultation, first and foremost, to the primary care providers. Um, they receive information about our, kind of our take on what's going on with the veteran and recommendations, so what might help. We also provide education just an, as an ongoing basis to the primary care providers on the different pain management services that we offer. Um, our primary care providers are extremely busy, often overworked. They're putting in a lot of time and seeing a lot of veterans each day. So it can be really hard to try and retain that information. So that's a role that PCMHI serves. We also provide education on placing consults too. Um, if you're in the VA, you know kind of the web of the consult menu and things can be hidden and it's hard to figure it out and that takes a lot of time, um, a lot of unnecessary time for the primary care providers. So MHI is, has the knowledge, the information, the education to provide that to the, to the primary care providers. We also serve as a liaison between primary care and our interventional pain clinic, also our SIPM, uh, Center for Interdisciplinary Pain Management, and the mental health clinic. So we have ongoing meetings with these individual clinics to get an understanding of, you know, how our relationship is, what services we should be offering, also to, to talk with them about, you know, this seems to be working in primary care right now, or this doesn't seem to be working in primary care right now. This handout actually came from one of those meetings that we had. So you can see up here at the top, these are all the pain-related services that we offer. This is a lot to remember, a lot of information to hold on to. And what I was noticing was as, you know, the primary care providers are talking with the veterans about pain and trying so desperately to get the veterans in for services that they needed. They were feeling overwhelmed. They were feeling kind of powerless about where to send these, these veterans. And just really a lack of time in trying to figure this out on their own. So I, during one of our meetings with SIPM, I said, hey, we need a better process for this because it's really causing some distress. So our SIPM team actually put together this sheet. So this is a handout that I would take around with me to when I would meet with the primary care providers. 
um, after doing that initial 30-minute assessment with veterans, and I would say, you know, just walk through basically where, how to place the consults and what to put in each of the consult boxes. And this proved to be extremely helpful. Um, it decreased the frustration level greatly. So that page was hard to see, but I just wanted to show here again the different services that we have. Another thing was that we do in primary care mental health integration is this collaboration on the opioid safety initiative. So I was talking with some folks last night and realized, not surprisingly, that VA different medical centers will implement this differently. So in our, in Salem VA Medical Center, we actually have the nurse practitioner from SIPM, that interdisciplinary team, come into primary care and work with each PAC team separately. And the purpose of this is to identify those veterans who are high risk and to start having really in-depth conversations with them about maybe tapering down on the opioids or trying to get them into other pain management services at the same time as well. So PCMHI played a huge role in this because so veterans would come in for a 60 minute appointment with a nurse practitioner for these for these talks and PCMHI would see the veteran either before or after that appointment. And this proved to be really really helpful because there were some times where a veteran was reporting suicidal ideation and had a plan and so having PCMHI there was extremely helpful to developing a safety plan or getting the veteran into um, the emergency room for a full psychiatric evaluation. It was helpful a lot of times. So we noticed that, well, really with any place that you are, there's going to be some barriers that you experience, right? The, the barriers that we experienced were, as I mentioned, just confusion about the services that we offered, perceived lack of support from the providers or among the providers. They felt as if, you know, a lot of these policies, they have so much to really think about as they're working with veterans um, and just not a lot of support or resources to be able to do that. So there were some communication errors. Um, specifically, you know, making referrals, putting, placing in a wrong consult. And if you do that a number of times, that actually can decrease um, the amount of time that you could be spending on important clinical responsibilities. So, you know, just that was an issue, just, you know, inappropriate referrals, lack of communication. There was also tension between providers and patients, so within the VA, you know, the providers felt as though they were essentially sometimes powerless about prescribing opioids. And of course, the patients have been taking maybe this medication for X number of years and is really resistant to getting off of it. Um, there was also some confusion about responsibility of ownership. So I mentioned that for that opioid safety initiative, we had the nurse practitioner come into primary care. and. 
that made it difficult because then the question was, who, who is responsible for this patient and the prescribing and the tapering at that point? Was it the nurse practitioner or the primary care provider? And then also time. I don't think that that needs a whole lot of explanation. Some of the facilitators were providing that, uh, PCMHI providing that education both to providers and to the patients or the veterans. Um, also, one strength I really feel like that our model has is we offer just a number of different services in a number of different ways. And we offer things through telehealth, so our reach to veterans is, is great. We get those veterans in the rural areas. Um, but, you know, we have individual and group options. So if group is not something they're comfortable with, which a lot of veterans who have PTSD may not be comfortable with groups, then we can get them in individual appointments. Also, PCMHI was used as really a gateway um, for any sort of additional mental health or behavioral health services. And this was really helpful because this cut down on the number of inappropriate consults that were sent. Um, we, it was also helpful to have that consultation and liaison between the different specialty clinics. And using motivational interviewing skills has been extremely helpful in working with veterans who present with chronic pain. So I just wanna go over some recommendations that I have maybe moving forward. Um, First is, if you're not familiar with motivational interviewing, I would highly recommend just looking into it because it's one of those skill sets that, is, that can be used in very brief interactions and it can be immensely helpful in creating that collaborative relationship with your patient. So the first step, let's say you're gonna practice motivational interviewing skills, the very first step is to first ask permission to share information to the patient when you're working with them. Mr. Farm, can we talk a bit just about your pain and how it's currently being managed? This step seems so, may, may seem so silly to some of you, but it's actually a really important step because this is an introduction to we are going to be collaborators and it empowers the veteran to say, no, I don't wanna talk about that, or yes, I do wanna talk about that. So it's already giving some of, handing some of that power over. The next is elicit change talk. So get the veteran or your patient talking about his or her desires for pain management, needs, um, motivation for, for making any sort of changes. A question might be, what would you like to see different about your pain management? Get their perception on it and ask this open-ended question because open-ended question, questions often elicit um, more detailed, more in-depth responses and getting at what your patient really needs. Then explore your patient's, the importance that he or she places on pain management and their level of confidence in how well their pain can be managed. So some example questions might be, how would your life be different if your pain moved from a seven to a five? On a 10 point scale with 
how important is pain management to you? 10 being extremely, like the most important thing ever, and one being not important at all. On a 10-point scale, how motivated are you to try a new pain management intervention? If they're not motivated, they're not going to do it. So the referral may not be appropriate at that point. And then on a 10-point scale, how confident are you that your pain can be managed? That's a really important question as well. And you'll see that your answers, the, your patient's answers to these questions um, really give you a good understanding of their thoughts about their pain management. And this might be a good introduction to PCMHI at that point. And then this last step, which is also equally important as all of the others, is reflective listening. Repeat back to your patient what you think he or she said. This offers an opportunity to show your empathy, to show that you're listening, to show that you're caring. And this also furthers that collaborative communication with the veteran. Mr. Farm, it sounds like you are really having a lot of pain and you're having a hard time figuring out how to manage that pain. It must be really difficult, you know, you wanna to go to your son's baseball uh, tournament, but you can't, you're having a hard time doing that. Let's see what we can do about that. And then lastly, if you're not already collaborating with mental health professionals, I would strongly encourage you to figure out how to, how to make that happen because so I don't want to just stand up here as a clinical psychologist and promote clinical psychologists, but I feel like mental health professionals, behavioral health professionals, do have a lot to offer in the field of pain management. You can figure out where the gaps are in your care. Is it, is it, are you unable to set aside time to connect with the patient, to ask them about their needs for pain management? Do you feel like there's a gap in the education that they're receiving about the connection between emotional well-being and physical well-being? You can work with PCMHI to fill those gaps. Um, you can also enlist PCMHI's assistance with suicide risk assessment, which is so important as well and proved to be valuable. And we know that before it was, before 2010, it was older Caucasian men aged 85 and older that had the highest risk for suicide or the higher highest rates of suicide. Now it's white men aged 40 to 65 and I bet you have a lot of those folks in your practice right now that you see. Also having mental health in will allow you the opportunity to identify even more patients who might benefit from additional treatments for pain. And also, you know, figuring out a way to introduce PCMHI to, to patients or veterans to reduce that stigma can be extremely helpful as well. It can be helpful in breaking down those barriers to getting the treatment that can really be helpful to them. A lot of times when a patient knows that you're going to refer to them to a mental health professional and they've never been introduced to PCMHI or mental health or behavioral health, they think, oh, he thinks that my pain is all in my head. No, we're here to tell you that 
as psychologists, we believe you really do experience that pain, but what we want to help you do is to be able to live a meaningful life, a life that you're proud of, despite having that pain. So I just, as I end this presentation, I'd like to just take a couple of seconds to acknowledge just the leadership and mentorship of Dr. Sarah Hartley and Kimberly Pratt at the Salem VA Medical Center. This presentation, um, this implementation in primary care certainly would not have been um, feasible without them. All right, thank you. Oh yeah, sure. Do yes. That's a really good question. So we asked, what's the success rate? How many of those? Um, got off medications, how many of them got back on. And that is data that they're looking at right now, so I don't have a, an answer for you on that. I do know that um, a lot of the veterans, just anecdotally, a lot of the veterans did remain on medication, but were able to significantly decrease it. Um, so yeah, I don't have the, the data to report that. We're going to hold um, the questions till the end so that we can make sure I can Sure, absolutely. But, um, I just wanted to, to get that um, started. Um, great job. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Um, good morning. Thank you for staying when I know that there are so many other things calling for your attention here, not only at Pain Week, but in Vegas. So um, I'm glad that you're all here. Um, I want to recognize all of you who are working with pain patients already because um, these are some of the most challenging patients that any primary care setting has, has to work with. So um, I, I just want you to know that, that mental health providers and other team members are here to support the pain patients so that all the work doesn't have to fall upon the physician or the nurse practitioner or the physician's assistant. Now, um, I've got in my slides sort of two different talks, and I kind of want to make an assessment. Would you prefer for me to focus more on the policies and the strategic planning of developing um, a primary care pain management practice, or would you prefer for me to focus more on the kinds of treatments that I actually do and sort of give you an example of how I wor actually work with the patients. Two? Okay, so I'm going to race through the policy slides and, and things like that and then get and spend most of the time on direct patient care. You can see my learning objectives, so um, I'm not going to review all those, but you will find specific slides for each of these learning objectives. Um, I really have um, nothing to disclose. As Lindsay said, these are all of our opinions, not necessarily the viewpoints of all VAs. Um, but I do have kind of two secret disclosures. Um, I became a pain psychologist and then I developed chronic pain. So um, 
not only do I have the perspective of being a pain psychologist for 20 years, I've had chronic pain for 15 years, and I think that's given me so much more of a heart for doing pain management, and I think that if to do pain management effectively, we all have to have that heart for caring for people who are hurting and understanding that nobody is hurting on purpose. Nobody's done this by choice. Um, I should also tell you that my theoretical orientation is firmly based in ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy, which is considered the third wave of behavioral care, which started with like behavioral approaches and then moved to cognitive behavioral approaches and acceptance and commitment therapy is the third wave. So my goal when I talk to you is not to talk at you, but to give you an experience of um, what it's like to be a pain patient. So there will be some times when I'm maybe like putting you through an experience that maybe you've never had before in relation to pain. Um, so um, a couple years ago after I had, I've been at Fayetteville for about two and a half years, but I've been with the VA for almost 14 years. So um, I was listening to NPR on the way home and I heard a veteran um, talking to a news reporter and he said, pain on the battlefield lets you know that you're alive. When pain continues, it takes away your willingness to stay that way. To me, that's the viewpoint I want all of my primary care practitioners to use when they are seeing a veteran in, in pain. So some of the tools that you have to have, and remember, I'm gonna race through these so we can get to the clinical side. You have to have institutional buy-in. It's best to make a strategic care plan. This is not just for within the VA. You can set these, use these tools within any primary care setting, and especially if you have a primary care setting that includes um, is in a larger system, you're going to have access to these. Um, make a proposal to your leadership, um, use pain directives and roadmaps that are available, not just through the VA, but many of the pain, larger pain organizations can um, provide information on roadmaps and things like that. Um, it's helpful to have a pain care oversight committee so that you have a forum um, to build your own policies and to enforce these policies and then to develop some outcome measures. So regarding institutional buy-in, when I came to the Fayetteville VA, they recruited me because they had no pain program whatsoever. And pain management has been mandated in the VA since at least 2009 and so in 2014, there was still no pain program. So they brought me in there and I went around meeting people. And when I went to the director of the facility, I said, what is your vision for this pain program that I have the honor of starting from um, scratch? And she said, I see your role as developing pain programs for our veterans across the entire adult lifespan for the main VA and all of our outpoints, including the healthcare centers and CBOX while understanding that our veterans may be unique and that we serve a large group of veterans who are involved in special forces during their entire military career. Because we're in the same town with Fort Bragg, which is 50,000 special forces. And 
I said, oh, then you're going to have to allow me to hire people who are not traditional medical practitioners and traditional pain providers. And she said, you just let me know what you need and we're going to move in that direction. Had I not had that conversation with her, I would not have understood the scope of what, what she thinks is possible to do. So um, we, did, we started a pilot program. I started it within the women's clinic because it was um, a group of um, just 10 providers and I could work collaboratively. They were already very high functioning in their team approach. So um, just me, myself, in this um, pilot period, you can see the number of patients that I saw. Make sure when you're making your strategic plan that you do a vision statement and a mission statement. You can see examples here. Again, these are in your slides. You can read them. We'll just move on um, from there. But um, to me, um, the, the major take-home message from my vision and mission statement is there's no wrong door to access care for pain management. Wherever the patient shows up and says they're hurting is the starting point for treatment of their pain. So it doesn't matter to me if they went to mental health, if they went to the emergency room, if they called the National Suicide Hotline, whatever door they enter is where we're going to meet them. And I do that as a warm handoff so I'll get an instant message or a phone call or an email saying, can you come to room such and such? I'm there with patient A who um, we want to lower his opioid dose or he wants to come to your pain classes and I immediately go right there. So no wrong door to access pain care, but also no patient that doesn't qualify for some version of pain management. If we can get, if, if the um, pain clinic can take those patients out of the primary care setting to do this work, then it frees primary care up to do the other things that primary care needs to do. We can stabilize them and get them back um, to the primary care provider. Um, Lindsay's already talked about the step care model and this was uh, mandated in the National Directive 2009. You can Google this, you can get it, you can read it. it says that um, you must, the VA, every facility must develop a competent primary care workforce in pain management. So what I'm running into with my 60 primary care providers is they don't believe that they own pain management. But the VA has mandated that the first pass of pain care has to be within the primary care setting and a full faith effort and evaluation of the pain must be completed in the primary care setting. So half of my job is training primary care doctors in how to do that. Because as you know, and you've probably heard many times here, what's on the imaging may not be the pain experience, but um, physicians are heavily relying on the um, data that they're getting through traditional methods to make decisions about pain care, and that may not be the best information. 
So um, when I made my proposal, you can see here, um, I co um, collected some data from other VAs, how many different providers they had in their pain clinic, um, what, were, what was the range of provider in pain clinic from nurse practitioner to physician to psychologist to clerical support, um, complementary and alternative treatments. And you can see um, over here the number of staff that each of the VAs that I worked with. Fayetteville is the only one I've identified. Um, uh, I just don't think we need to focus on which VA has more, but this is sort of how I worked through it. And you can see the percentage of more pain patients that were seen just by adding very few additional staff members. And you're thinking, great, how am I going to add those staff members? So um, I have um, put together, and I'm, I don't, um, I'm sorry about the RN thing being out of alignment, but it doesn't really indicate anything. So in the VA, I looked up the estimated salaries, figured out how much we would have to pay these staff members, added up, and these are the high estimates for each of these particular um, staff members, the high end of the salary range. And then I looked, and it's not really on here because that's not data that I can release, but I looked at how much the VA is spending to what we call fee out pain care, which means that the pain care is not being provided in the VA, it's being provided in the community, and the VA is paying for that. So our VA estimates that they pay about $1,500 um, each time that a patient is seen in the community for pain care. If you take our 5,000 patients who are on chronic daily opioids and you multiply that by $1,500 for each of four visits a year, it can be quite a large sum. And if you think that maybe you're spending three or four million dollars to fee out all this care, but you can provide this care in your facility for one million dollars, what makes the best sense to the facility? What, how can we be the best custodians of our resources? And if we can do this for a million dollars in-house, maybe that's the best model. So I also calculated for my leadership, um, at the low end, if say a, pain, a physician did two 60-minute intakes and saw eight 30-minute follow-ups and made four phone calls, these are the numbers of patients that they could see on an annual basis based on um, the federal employees' um, workup for how many hours a person actually works a year. So I did that for each of the um, providers that we want to have in our primary care pain team. You can see that a lot of work can be done, and this is on the low end of what a person could do clinically, because typically the workload for a physician is to see 12 to 18 patients a day. So here I've got them seeing 10 patients a day. You can see these, this is very much on the low end of what could be accomplished in a primary care setting with just a few additional staff members. Um, the pain directive, which you can Google, read, apply to your setting, is um, pointed out here. Um, 
We also have a pain-packed or primary care um, patient-aligned care team-packed pain roadmap. You can Google that. It, it establishes a, a shared vision for um, education for staff and also um, what roles each team member can play in treating pain. Um, it, we're supposed to identify local champions on each primary care team. So for me, that would be 60 primary care pain champions. Um, it's very, very important guidelines. It's very helpful, very easy to read, very interactive, and it's considered a living document. So the way that the document looks now is going different from what we're going to know in six months, and they're going to keep updating the document. So um, this Jason Simkakuski Promise Act, when I wrote this talk, was in the works and now it has been signed into law as of the end of July and it's called the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act or CARA 2016. This is not just for the VA. This is 85 pages of Congress telling us how to do pain care and manage addiction within pain care. This applies to everybody doing pain care. It just so happens that page 61 to 85 is exclusively for veterans. So um, I don't know, you know why um, Congress knows more about doing pain medicine than us, but this is the law of the land and, and until further notice, I recommend that you look at how that's going to impact your practice. Um, it uh, works with what, uh, how many times the patient has to have a urine drug screen, how many times the uh, primary care practitioner or the pain practitioner has to see the patient. No longer is there going to be once every six months and you can continue opioids. It seems to suggest that you're going to have to see the patient every month in order to write a prescription that every month um, the provider is going to have to review the um, uh, prescription drug monitoring programs for your state. So if, if you're writing prescriptions and you haven't made that tool available to you, I recommend that you go ahead and um, start checking um, every time that you prescribe opioids. Um, do that prescription drug monitoring program because what I try to teach my providers is that it's not the high dose of opioids that is as dangerous to the patients as, as what we're hearing in um, the media. It's how we manage the care of the patients. So if you use urine drug screens and you check the prescription drug monitoring program and use all your tools um, like collaborating with substance abuse providers, um, collaborating with mental health providers, that is more protective of the patient and puts them at a lower risk for an adverse event within the next year. That is more predictive than is the high dose of opioids. And what what um, state licensing boards are looking at 
is in addition to the number of patients there are in your clinic on high, on high dose opioids, they're looking at how much are you using these tools to provide good care to be a good provider for those patients who are taking these medicines. So I try to help my providers not to practice out of fear, but to practice out of science and evidence-based medicine. Um, and it's a, a learning curve, it's a learning process. And, and um, later on today, if you're still here, um, the, the next step in providing pain care in the step care model is gonna be presented by Dr. Michael Sanger and Beth Hemmons and um, their colleagues. They're gonna talk about how to do this in the third step, which is much more comprehensive specialty pain clinic. So um, I recommend that you, you pick up on that because they're gonna take you through the next um, level of care. Um, different outcome measures that are important for you to look at, especially polypharmacy. This bill, um, this law is almost requiring that no benzos be prescribed at the same time as opioids. And um, it's been common practice within the VA for a long time for patients to have benzos and opioids on board, but that's going to have to change. So when I see a patient who's on benzos and opioids, the first thing I ask them is, which one would you like to come off of? Which one would you like to work on tapering first? And naturally there's some resistance, but when they understand that this is for their health and, and we're gonna provide other tools that are gonna actually work better than these medicines, they can be fairly cooperative and actually um, ready to work on these, these plans. Um, these are some other di directives. The VA has moved from doing contracts, opioid contracts with patients, to a more collaborative model, which is a consent, an informed consent, where the provider or the nurse must educate the patient on the risk benefit profile of the medicine that they're offering. So it is much more collaborative. And I encourage you to look at all the tools. Not only do they, do we have this informed consent provided to us, but we have um, PowerPoint presentations that the primary care provider and the nurse just have to pick up and, and make useful for them. So you can access that even if you're not within the VA. Um, the new um, law re requires that you use the opioid risk assessment tool, um, and that, oops, um, and that's just a five-question um, measure looking at history of family um, substance abuse, history of patient substance abuse, pre-adolescent, uh, pre-adult um, sexual abuse, and things like that. So it's very, very easy to give. In the VA, we have reports that are just pulled from the medical records for us, and one is this opioid therapy risk report, um, and the bill, the law mandates now that providers use this tool, 
and document use of this tool. And it is a very good risk report, but we also have other risk reports that offer other things. So if you review the research literature, you can see the Reassort tool. And that um, makes a prediction on um, what the risk is of an adverse opioid-related event within the next year and within the next three years. So um, I recommend highly that you refer to that. You can see some of the topics that it pulls from, such as a sleep apnea diagnosis, substance use disorder. It also helps our providers understand when to use a naloxone kit. Now, this new law is going to make it require that naloxone kits be given for almost every opioid prescription. And many states are legislating that there will be a standing order at every pharmacy so that patients can go in and get their own naloxone kits. I um, fully support access to this tool because once they were released in the VA, I think there have been already over 2,000 effective uses of the naloxone kit within the last couple of years. Um, uh, I do think that education on use of the kit um, should be a priority um, because they usually come with two doses and um, um, sometimes one dose is not enough. The naloxone kits are meant to keep the person alive until emergency medical care can be provided. One thing, just want to give you a heads up, naloxone is not very effective with fentanyl and a lot of the heroin that's being sold on the streets now is um, being laced with fentanyl. And so um, in order for naloxone um, dose to be effective with fentanyl, it has to be on board within 10 minutes. And how many times is that really going to happen? And sometimes two doses, not enough to stabilize somebody who's on a fentanyl overdose. So um, these, are, these are important things to understand with using this tool. It's a great tool. It's not going to be effective in every setting. One of the newer tools is the STORM report. And um, I spoke right before I came here with the, um, one of the uh, team members who's created the STORM report. And not only is it pulling data from our medical records, but the provider can go in and adjust these scores. So like, if I lower the opioid dose, how much does their risk change? Thank you. If I, if I lower the dose, how much does the risk change? We find that lowering the dose really only changes their um, risk by about 1%. It's adding in this other information of getting patients in for substance abuse treatment, getting them into mental health care, prescribing a naloxone kit, and those kinds of things are really going to change the risk um, score. Now, this tool, which has been built for VA care, you can actually call this team and they will send you the programming for your electronic medical record. And you can have your um, IT people 
change the programming as needed. And they are, as far as she told me, that there would be no charge for this. So you can um, reach out to them, and I'll be happy to facilitate that if that's something you're interested in, because it's that good of a tool. That, and you, it may take you forever to work within your own medical record to start to pull these data. Um, educational strategies, um, we have um, the joint pain education program that's created by VA DOD, but you can go to this website and download it for yourself. It's about um, 18 modules, but some of the modules are broken up into more um, subcomponents, so it's, it really ends up being like 26 modules of pain education for the primary care team. And um, it's, just a second, it's going through, um, it's in its first, like 1.0 now, so um, Lindsay and I are actually um, involved in updating it to the 2.0, so I anticipate in about six months that there'll be a new version of it. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, it's excellent. And every patient should see it, every provider should see it. So thank you so much for that. Um, other educational tools are here, so um, use them as they best fit in your um, setting. Um, team cohesiveness is vital for pain management. Um, pain patients, willingly or unwillingly, um, know how to split teams. It's important for the patient, not that, you, that we gang up against patients, but that we are a strong team so that we can collaborate in helping the patient. And we, we work very hard with our teams not to let the patients divide the team because they're never going to get good pain care in that kind of environment. When I see a patient who comes into my clinic, I'm a clinical psychologist, and our pain physician won't be on board until next month. So I've been trialing all this on my own. So in order for me to see a patient in my pain classes, I require that the physician make a, a note which they have signed in the medical record saying the patient is cleared medically to participate in these behavioral self-care skills. I don't want the patient needing me forever. I'm sending them home with tools that they can use at home. But as a clinical psychologist, I can't determine if it's safe to use ice on this patient because there may be other health problems that I need to know about. So when you're working with other disciplines, it's important for providers to recognize that, that, that you have to do that work. You have to clear that patient to do the things that that other discipline is going to provide for you. It takes a team. These are the people who we anticipate being on our team. And then the additional team members are people that we hope to have available to us um, for warm handoffs and seeing the patients as needed. Um, 
The pain recovery group is the clinical work that I want to talk about today. Um, we do in every class, it meets for six basic classes, and for me, basic classes is cognitive behavioral therapy and six advanced classes, so that's six classes related to acceptance and commitment therapy. We try to increase physical activity. Um, very rarely will you hear me say the word exercise. Why? Because I hate exercise. And I told my yoga instructor, if you tell me I'm doing exercise, I will not come back. So let's not put that exercise burden on our patients. Let's keep them actively engaged in movement that is meaningful to them. And that could look like walking. It could look like doing laundry. It can look like doing yard work. But let's keep them moving. And I hope that y'all are going to talk about movement um, and you're also. <laughs> okay, okay, very good. So, um, as you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is the gold standard for managing chronic pain. Only when you look at the research literature. I looked at a, like a meta-analysis published in the American Psychological Association um, journal. They did a whole issue on pain management in 2014, which you can download off the internet. Um, and they say that cognitive behavioral therapy only has small to moderate effect sizes. So for me, that leaves tremendous room for us to bring in other tools and other resources. That may be our gold standard. But clearly, it is not everything that we need to manage pain care. I prefer the acceptance and commitment therapy model because it's based on the, the patient's values, not on my values. So what's going to lead that patient to living a full and valued life with their pain? Never is the goal to take away the pain. The goal is how are you going to live your life with the pain. If you're going to ride your motorcycle ever again, you're going to have to take your pain with you. How are you going to make that work? If you wait, and I'm otherwise known as the bossiest woman on the planet, so I say very directly to patients, if you're going to ride your motorcycle ever again, you're going to have to take your pain with you. If you wait for your pain to be gone, you will never ride your motorcycle again. And so that value might be important to one patient. Some patients don't care about riding motorcycles, but they do care about holding their grandchild. So you have to work from each patient's values. I do 99% of my work is in groups because I see that after the, around the third or fourth group, they have learned from all the other people who have been coming to groups longer than they have been. And the patients can teach each other things that I can't teach them. And the, it's the patients who have incorporated the learning that, that we have offered them in the primary care pain team. The patients are teaching this to other patients. And you can see right around the third or fourth week mark of, of the 12 weeks, you can see pain patients actually coming to class smiling and actually 
talking about what they've done to make a difference with their own pain. Um, so I highly recommend the group, the group um, model for working with pain. We meet for two hours every Tuesday afternoon. Um, right now, um, we're working out of a conference room, not a, not a larger classroom, so I usually keep it to about eight patients. Spouses and loved ones are always invited. Why? Because this disease affects the family, and I want the family engaging in the same things that the patient would be engaging in. So once again, otherwise known as the bossiest woman on the planet, I tell spouses and patients in the class, do not do for your husband anymore. If he wants that beer, he will get off the couch and get it, right? Because I want them moving, and I don't want families enabling them. I've seen family, I've seen spouses where their entire day is around taking care of someone else's pain. By the end of 30 years, they're hurting also. So if you look at the fMRI research about hurting, you'll see these certain pain areas in the brain light up. When a person is having an empathic response to somebody else's pain, it can be physical pain, it can be emotional pain, those same areas light up in the family member's brain. So when we say, I feel your pain, you actually may be feeling their pain in your brain. So we don't really want to do this to families. We don't want to put children at risk for having pain conditions. So we do work very heavily with the families. Do you all work with the families? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So each class, not only do we um, do a didactic component, which is very interactive, and I'll, I'll give you an example of one here. Um, we um, have very interactive discussions. We do walking. Our facility is um, 250,000 square feet, so we have about um, a tenth of a mile full in either direction, so we walk that for 20 minutes together. And not only does it show patients that if they assess before the walk how much more they're going to hurt, the anticipation of hurting is actually greater than the hurting afterwards. So if you say, how much do you anticipate you're going to hurt after this walk? And they say, well, my pain's already at a five, so it's going to go to a seven or an eight. After the walk, you reassess, and they're like, huh, my pain's a, a, a four or a three now. So what people anticipate about their pain does, is not borne out in, the, in giving them the actual experience of the walk. But not only does walking provide them with the physical activity that's needed to help with chronic pain and to improve sleep and all the other outcomes that we look at, it provides them with a, a new social relationship. And if you look at any chronic pain model, you can see clearly that social relationships are some of the first things to go. And when we build that back in and people see that they're not alone and that they can interact with other people without their pain escalating, 
then um, they, they, my pain patients actually start to call each other and email each other and they, um, this is leading to us starting a pain, a peer-led support group through the American Chronic Pain Association. So if you haven't worked with Penny Cowan yet, have Penny Cowan come to your facility and work with you on starting um, a peer-led support group. Um, and we do relaxation or mindfulness at every class. I don't always call it a technical name, um, but we do it. It's, it's, not, um, it's not exactly optional. I just start doing it, you know, and then people find that they love it. Um, so here's what our modules are going to look like. We're just now integrating other disciplines into the classes. I wanted to get the classes on a regular cycle and patients regularly coming before I started inviting the other providers. So we talk about pain. I pretty much give them a college level course on pain at the fifth grade reading level because that's what's required in the VA is the fifth grade reading level. We talk about pain pathways. We talk about the difference between physical pain and emotional suffering. We talk about centralized pain and wind up and I draw on the board, here's the, here's the foot and I just drop a block on it and I say to everybody, you know, where's the patient hurting? And they're like, the foot, he's hurting his foot, you just dropped a block on, you know, a concrete block on his foot. And I, and I say, well, well, let's see how that works. And we, I, I draw a nerve to the spinal cord and then we talk about um, neurotransmitters that are being released in the spinal cord and how um, those excess neurotransmitters that are meant to excite the nerve from the spinal cord to the brain, that they are leaching out because too much is being released and that glial cells and other cells that are supporting the spinal cord are actually like little Pac-Man eating those up and that those cells are now turning into pain cells. And patient, you can just see the light going off in patients when they start to understand that there is a scientific rationale, that they're not crazy, not, not that their provider is telling them they're crazy, but that they are not crazy in their experience of hurting. We talk about how, um, so here's an example of how I talk about what the brain on pain does. So we talk about, here's an fMRI that shows these pain areas. So we talk about muscle memory and things like that. And I say, so the, pain, the brain thinks that it can do pain better than the body can. So the brain says, don't worry, body, I got this. I see you need this pain to slow this person down or, or you know, to restore them to health in this other area. And it's, kind of gone out of whack, but don't worry, body, you know, I'm the brain and I can take care of that. And then I show them an fMRI that shows that those little small acute pain areas are now large chronic pain areas and how the brain has been hijacked by saying, don't worry, I can do pain better than you can. And that leads us to talk about neuroplasticity and what we can do now to shrink those areas that are not medication related. 
if you read the ACT literature and, and listen to Stephen Hayes, who's one of the developers of ACT, he talks about psychological flexibility is the best treatment to reduce responses to pain. Even psychological flexibility even works when the patient is on opioids. And all these physiological changes are occurring even when somebody's on opioids. Um, so uh, you can see the mindfulness training that I do on each one. We start with diaphragmatic breathing or deep breathing. I give instructions about why people are not breathing correctly anymore and how to get back to restoring that. Um, I give them homework on how to practice it. We move to autogenic training, which is more, um, so we, we do progressive muscle relaxation and then we move into autogenic. So progressive is like tense. See how it feels like to be tense? Relax. What does it feel like when your body's relaxed? Because you may feel a warm sensation. You may feel a cool sensation. Do you feel tingling? Do you feel, can you, are you now aware of what that stress, we do that through the whole body. And then we do that same thing through autogenic training, which is simply to say, imagine letting your hands relax. Let, my body feels warm and at peace. So we go from doing it physiologically with our muscles to actually using our mind, and that sets us up for doing other kind of relaxation training like guided imagery. Imagine yourself at a beach and um, smell that salt air and put your toe in the water and what does that feel like? The more senses you can use in a relaxation training, the more effective it will be and the more real it will be for that person and the more effects you're gonna have from doing that kind of work with the patients. I have patients who tell me, oh, this is not going to work for me. I can't relax. I can't sleep. I can't anything. In 10 minutes, you know, they're snoring, you know. So very quickly they learn that this is working for them. Other modules that we talk about are pain, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. You know, if you hear a noise outside, your thought might be that there's a, a shooter outside, or, or there might be a fight outside. Um, and so what is your emotion going to be from that? How strong is your emotion going to be? Um, what are your actions going to be if, if you're fearful and you think there's a shooter out there? Well, you might hide under the desk. But if you um, have a thought that maybe somebody just spilled something, then your fear is going to be less and your behaviors are not going to be so reactive. So we talk about um, not classically dysfunctional thoughts as people usually talk about in cognitive behavioral therapy. We talk about pain thoughts. And if you have a thought about your pain that says, this pain is killing me, not that that's a dysfunctional thought, but that how is that thought benefiting you? And when we do that, what's the emotion when you say the pain is killing me? And what is your action in response to that? And we simply change it to a neutral thought, not a positive thought. We say, what would be a neutral thought that you could say, oh, I'm experiencing pain today. 
And so then um, the patient says, oh, well, my fear is less and my willingness to engage in activity is more than we, if I say the pain is killing me. I talk to them about how the brain can't tell the difference um, between if somebody is actually threatening to kill you and you say to yourself, this pain is killing me, the brain sends out the same stress hormones. If it's a perceived threat or a real threat, it's still sending out stress hormones. We talk about that it takes 90 seconds for stress hormones to clear. And if we stop fighting against things, that you can clear those stress hormones in 90 seconds. These are the kinds of things that make sense to people and you give them an actual experience with that and then it's an automatic buy-in. The, the resistance is, is completely gone. We do actual self-hypnosis. You know, self-hypnosis is the best treatment for headaches. It's got much more evidence for treating headaches than cognitive behavioral therapy does. So let's use this other tool and, and figure out how to practice that for this, the areas of pain that it's really useful. Um, we talk about um, how, how can you commit yourself to doing the values that you engage in. So what would it look like if you um, value going to church as a 10 out of 10 on your value scale, and then I ask the patients, well, how much effort are you putting into that value? And they might say, well, I'm only going to church once a month, and I'm not going to Bible study, so I'm really only probably putting in 5 out of 10 effort. So we look at the difference between how much they value it and how much effort they're putting forth. And I asked the patient, what would it look like for you if you brought that effort up by one point? We only need to know what, how much it takes to make a one point difference because then we can build on that. We can set your goals from that. But I need for you to experiment this week. And what would it look like to make that effort be a six? And it spirals on from there. You really don't have to have that conversation very much about values and how to use that because once they see that all it takes is one point of effort in this, then they know how to put that next one point of effort in. And my goal is just to get them to sustain that effort and to work with them on that. Um, the last class is on staying strong, which is really relapse prevention. Um, so um, at that class, I have people write a letter to themselves about um, what would they like their life to look like six months from now. And about a month later, I send them the letter as a reminder for what their goals are and what they chose to work on in the pain class. So the take-home message is to be familiar with your policies, procedures, guidelines, create the ones that you need, Use models, you don't have to reinvent these things from the wheel. Collaborate with others who are also doing this care. Be willing to try new models, be willing to um, really engage, with, get, get in the dirt with the patient and, and, and see what their experience is and see what you can do to help them with that. Make sure that you have a strong team model 
where patients can't divide your team, and absolutely always engage the patient in these decisions that are being made. We don't do medical care to patients anymore. We do medical care with patients, and it's been a challenge to shift to that model, but we're actually seeing very positive outcomes from that. Well, thank you all very much. We'll be happy to take questions.